You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. In the house you grew up in, one time I go into the laundry room and there is a light fixture that is broken and it's literally just pulled from the ceiling. Right. No way this could have just happened. It's hanging by the electrical it's hanging cords. by the cords yeah. out of the ceiling. Yes. Okay. As if it were pulled out of the ceiling. So I want to ask you now on air, how'd that happen? I don't know. <laughs> Damn it. I really, I, All I right. at this point, enough time has passed. It, well, that's why I asked you now. I mean, I, there's no, it's a long time ago. Listen, I did a lot of dumb things. Yeah. I broke a lot of things. I know. House. You broke your ceiling fan like three times in your room. I'm pretty sure it was four. All right. I did not do that. I didn't break it. I don't remember. All right. I, I don't go to one of your sisters. I don't really remember it. Nobody will fess up. It could have been an accident. It could have been it, a it, handyman. It didn't, just it, fall, been a, it didn't just fall out of the ceiling. Well, that's not what I'm claiming happened. What I'm claiming is that I just don't know. You're claiming it wasn't you. It, th- yeah. Okay. All right. At I'm going to check you off my it. list. Yeah. Are you satisfied with my answer? You know, you, you didn't have voice inflection. You didn't, uh, you didn't, didn't waver. Any, you didn't seemed very tells. confident. You didn't have any tells. No, you seemed very confident. Because I'm telling the truth. I got no choice but to believe you. Today, we did talk to a lying expert or an expert in uncovering lies, Lena Cisco. Lena is a former Naval Intelligence Officer and Marine Corps Certified Interrogator who served in the Global War on Terror, conducting hundreds of of interrogation. She's a published author, international keynote speaker, former TEDx speaker, and she was an expert witness on the TV show Couples Court. She's an expert panelist for both SpyX and the Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Today, she trains the Department of Defense, government agencies, law enforcement, special forces, and private sector industries in interviewing and interrogation, statement analysis, body language, detecting deception, elicitation, and change leadership. She's the CEO and founder of two companies, the Congruency Group, Vector Intelligence. We talked with Lena about reverse engineering conversations so you get the answers you're looking for, cognitive overload and how that can help reveal the truth in conversations, denying, justifying, and qualifying lies so that you may not even know you're lying to yourself, and the ingredients for rapport, the foundation of building relationships built on trust. I learned a lot. Uh, this conversation that we had will help you understand lies when they're being told to you and by you. So stick around and hear some words of wisdom from Lena Cisco. I'm Sanger Smith. As always, I'm with my dad. <laughs> as always, I'm Sanger Smith. As always, I'm with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. <laughs> Lena, great to have you back. Hey, Lena. Hi. Thank you guys for having me back. How do we know you're not still a spy? (laughs) Well, you guys have to discover that by the end of this episode. (laughs) That's your (laughs) fact. Well, ever since we talked last, I've caught Sanger in so many lies. Oh, that's fine. That's that's, they call me Abe Lincoln. He's like, no, no, which is a lion in, in, in and <laughs> of itself, right? They call you Abe Lincoln. Just keep denying. If you read my book, Sanger, you will be able to lie 
pretty good. How do I, how do I, where's the book on only being able to ever tell the truth? Yeah. Well, naturally we should only do that. Right. But as humans, we lie every single day, even if it's for me to say that your new haircut looks amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, we do it. And sometimes we that's, just do it because we want to make people feel yeah, good. That's good. He did it himself. Yeah. How did you, how did you get into this whole field of study? Because you look at your background in anthropology and archeology span and those types of things. How did you go from that into interrogation and truth detection and those types of things? It was never planned. It sort of fell in my lap. And when it came to me, I was like, Ooh, do I want to do this? And my first Answer was no, I do not want to do this. So long time ago, uh, I became an archaeologist, which was my childhood dream. I wanted to be Indiana Jones, so I did. And I had an amazing time, came back, got my master's, and I had no job, no money. And I had a friend who said, hey, you could join the military and they'll pay you. I was like, ooh, money? I need money. And people are like, are you crazy? You're going to go join the military? Why don't you just get a job? <laughs> so I thought, no, this is adventure and it's fun. And if I can't be Indiana Jones, well, then I will be James Bond. There you so, go. Female version. And so he enticed me and he said, it's intelligence and it's super cool and it's spy stuff. And that's all I needed to hear. And I was like, okay, sign me up. I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, and I came, you know, I signed up as an enlisted member. And the first thing I went to my basic reserve intel school, it was supposed to be a year, went through about seven or eight months, finished early, got stationed to my very first duty station in Rhode Island, because that's where I'm from. And it was Office of Naval Intelligence. And I was doing wargaming, which I'm old, you know, I'm a product of the 70s, but I was, uh, you know, the 80s is what I really go back to. And if you guys remember war games, that movie. I do. Yeah. The only way to, so the only thought, way to win is to not right. play. <laughs> Exactly. So here I am thinking, ooh, it's going to be just like the movie. Well, it's not really. Anyway, um, and so a commander, very senior officer came up to me and I was and I was seaman Cisco at the time. Yeah. Very, yeah. very junior. And he said, hey, we have a bunch of Marines coming to talk to us this weekend about IPW, which is interrogation prisoners of war. And we think you'd be an awesome fit. I listened to the Marines. I said, thanks, but no thanks. This is not my life. Uh, and the next day I came back because I thought this was that we call it in my leadership schools. We call it the blue dot, right? It's that the opportunity that presents itself. But you're going, Ugh, do I take it? Do I not? It feels kind of exciting, but it's scary. So I was like, this is my blue dot. Blue and dot. If I take blue, it, hold on. There's got to be a reason for that. What is the blue dot? When I train government agencies, I train from pay grade three all the way up to SES. And we do little private classes offsite. They were a lot of fun, very intimate for leadership. And in one of the classes at the very end, we trick them and we say, hey, listen, okay, we're almost done. Tomorrow's your last day. But three of you are in charge of putting together an entire course wrap up for the last four days. And everyone's like, oh, I hope it's not me. I hope it's not me. So he said, all right, those of you with the blue dot under your chair, you will be the three who will lead this event. And at the count of three, you can stand up and look under your chair. And everybody's like this, you know, you can see the panic. Yeah. And of course we know there's no blue dot. And so I count to three, they all stand up and I'm like, all right, sit down. There's no blue dot. But the blue dot is all of a sudden I hear there's a potential that I have to do X and I get worried and excited at the same time. And I'm in my, you know, my, maybe I get stressed out and my stress response system kicks off all because of what a thought I'm thinking. That was it. 
So I implanted a thought and we create our own stress. And at the end, you've just gone through this emotional roller coaster for nothing because it was all self-induced. Mm. And so we, and it's, you know, it's a training skill by itself just to say, hey, when things happen in life, that fear of the unknown is super scary and we can create that self-induced stress, which is not good. So anyway, we call it that blue dot. But way back in my day, when the commander came to me, what did I do? I started thinking the worst and I created my own stress. And I was like, ah, I can't do that. I don't want to be in a war zone and have people, you know, shooting at me and living in tents for months on end. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> so, um, but then I just went home that night and I thought, if I don't take this opportunity, I feel like I'm going to miss up, miss out on something huge. So I went back and I found the commander. I said, listen, commander, sign me up. I don't know if I'm ever going to make it, but I'll, I'll try. And fast forward so many years, it ended up being like the best decision I ever made. I truly love, loved interrogating. I'm still interviewing today, but it's that, you know, human to human interaction and that connection that I truly feel is what I'm meant to do on this planet. That was probably your first connection with inducing stress and how st <laughs> and stress in people and recognizing it. Uh, you know, I, I've heard you say that, you know, lie detectors aren't really lie detectors. They're stress detectors, which is probably right. But you ended up from there in Gitmo as yeah. an interrogator, not not as a prisoner. <laughs> <laughs> well, clarify that. Yeah, I just want, I want to make that clear. Did those interrogations because they are with terrorists who we're, we're trying to find out what they're about to do or what they're wanting to do. Is that different from interrogating somebody that we suspect has done a, a crime? Is there a difference there in, in sort of uncovering, you know, motivations or intents? And oh, I love that you said that too, because so many times people are like, get the confession, right? Get the truth. Well, you need to know motivation and intent because it comes with the bigger package. I'm going to say no to that question because how I prepare for every interview, interrogation, conversation, whatever it is, is I'm planning and I'm taking all of my techniques and I'm planning out this conversation so that it's going to be effective to whatever my objective is. If my objective is to get you to tell me what you did, then that's how I plan my conversation. If my objective is to get you to tell me what you intend to do, then that becomes it. And I always tell people, especially when I teach elicitation, because I use elicitation in my interrogations, and that really takes planning, that you can reverse engineer your conversation because you have to know your objective. You can't just go into an interview and be like, well, I'll just kind of poke around and see what comes out. When That's you what we're doing to you right now. Well, I know. I've got an yeah, agenda. Hopefully. I'm not going to tell you. You've got about 55 more minutes and then I'll let you know. I get five minutes before the show. Yeah. I'm like, oh, did I make my mark? <laughs> so reverse engineering yes. the conversation. Interesting. So you think, I want to know what their motivation was before I learn what their motivation is. I've got to know what. What comes right before that, I guess. So I'm always interested in what drives people to do the things they do. Right. And like for you guys, I want to know what drives you to make the decisions you make. There's critical, even some not so critical, but I want to know what drives you to do that. Mm -hmm. There's intent. There's a motivation. There's part of your personality. There's your, you know, if you're inward focus, outward focus, there's your likes, your dislikes. There's so much. There's whether or not you like change or are adverse to change. And so when I profile you, it helps me uncover those motivations, intent 
and all that stuff behind what drives you to make a decision to do or say something. So when you, you did some work with uh, a couple's court on TV, tell me a little bit about the background of that show. Oh gosh. Okay. So you have couples coming on and one of the couple in the partnership, whether it is dating or married or whatever is claiming that the other person is cheating on them. Okay. And so, yes. So, and when I heard about it, I was like, Ooh, Ooh, I thought it'd be a little Jerry Springer ish. And I thought, well, I can't do this. (laughs) But then I met the whole entire cast. I met the producer, the executive producer. And I was like, these people are legit. This is pretty cool. So I said, okay, let, let me try a season. And I was on for three, but I did the same thing. My goal was to find out if the accused was guilty or not. So how successfully did that line up with other tactics that were used to uncover that? It was pretty amazing. So I became friends with the polygraphers, with um, the people who did the voice stress analysis to our forensics data Hold on, polygraphers. (laughs) We need to start calling that polygraphers. (laughs) It sounds way too close to something else. (laughs) I never thought of that, but as I said, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. Okay, we're going to call it a polygrapher. (laughs) They've got a lot of different (laughs) machines they're tweaking. (laughs) Well, you just went there. You went there, Springer. So, yeah. So one of the polygrapher, polygraph examiners, how's that? There you go. There you go. We became really close. He is an amazing guy. He's fabulous. And so I would get the accused, the litigant before him. So they'd come into interrogation And then usually they'd pop on to polygraph. Now, that was great for me because I use that as a ruse inside my interrogations as well to say like, hey, listen, um, how do you feel about going on the polygraph machine after me? And immediately by your facial expression, by what you say next, I could tell whether or not you're going to sweat through it or, you know, hey, I'm being truthful. I have nothing to hide. Put me on it. And so whenever... So that was one of your tests. Say, oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Why not use what's given Kinda to you? Kind of just like the, right? like the blue dot. You're, you're inducing stress. So you're just a big fat liar to yeah. people is really what you... <laughs> the worst practical I'm joke. I'm an influencer. I'm going to call myself an influencer. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're inducing stress by introducing uncertainty on purpose. Absolutely. Absolutely. We call that the fear of the unknown. And, you know, I used it back in Gitmo. I used it. I use it now. And here's the greatest part of that is because even though I'm talking to you in a very soft, calm voice and I'm introducing thoughts, that's all I'm doing. Now, I don't know what you're going to think about going on a polygraph machine. I have no idea. Maybe you're going to love it. Maybe you want to do it to prove to us, you know, like, hey, I'm telling the truth. But those thoughts, you're creating them not me. And so, but I can tell a truthful person is going to start thinking, great, because finally I'll be cleared. A non-truthful person's going to start to sweat it out. And they're going to become very nervous thinking, what if I don't pass? What do I need to do? What does this machine really measure? How can I, you know, get around it? And so those thoughts create anxiety. And that kicks off the stress response system, which I see in here. And so that's why it's such a good technique to use. I even train in my classes, I will push people to what's called cognitive overload. It's when I'm pretty certain that you're lying to me 
And so I start asking specific questions about the lie and I get you more stressed and more stressed either to remember the lie or lie on the fly that you start to pop over into your limbic brain. You've left your prefrontal cortex, that's gone. And so now you're in your limbic brain and you become a little irrational, you become emotional, you may become defensive, whatever it is, you're not thinking clearly. And then when I start to ask you the specific questions, it's almost like deer in the headlights. You can't answer them. And I know at that point, I've made you so nervous. And I say, I, it's not really me. It's the people who make themselves nervous that usually at that point, they just kind of look at me and zone out. And then I ease it up and I say, can I get you something to drink? I know there's probably something on your mind you want to, you want to tell me right now. And then I just listen. So the, the threat of the polygraph machine is, is probably as good as the polygraph machine itself. Yes, absolutely. Do you find that people, you know, you know, how we see in the movies, do people just break and go, okay, okay. I, you know, I did it. Or are they holding to the lie and you sort of go away, go, this person is so full of crap. They're just, they're lying and they're just not coming off of it. What, I mean, what normally happens? (laughs) Both. Really? Okay. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. There's, um, so it depends on the person. Most of us, like even me, I don't like to lie No, because I know my tells. I know I'm not that good. I can't, I can't be good, what are your tells? but I know I have a tell. Tell me your tells. And that makes me know I'm, I'm not good. Oh. Maybe actually, maybe I will share. All right. Tell me. Maybe what? I'll share. <laughs> Do you like, tell me now. I want to know now. <laughs> you know, wait until the end. Of wait the till the end. Quiz us. Yeah. To the end of the All show. Right. And I will tell you my tell. Okay. I promise. All right. All right. So, and that makes me nervous because I'm like, ooh, people are going to know I'm lying. It's not the fact that I can't keep up a lie because, man, I can come out of, I can create a lot of stuff on the fly and be fine. And I could talk my way out of pretty much anything. But that little fear, somebody's going to know I'm lying, creates the stress. And I think most of us are like that. So when people lie, it's just the most uncomfortable feeling. And then trying to remember it or keep it up and then who it affects and it goes on and on and on. So I like to say that inherently all people want to be honest and I just have to find the point in which to talk about, to use, to trigger that in you to want to be honest. And I tell everybody this, and this is the most important thing. People are not going to be truthful to you unless they want to. So you have to create that comfortable, safe environment for people to feel okay with you to tell you the truth. Who is the worst liar that you ever got to talk to? Oh gosh. I don't know. I can't, I've done the most obvious. All right. Well, I will share one story and you know what, since we talked about couples core, I'll share it from that, that um, show. There was a gentleman. Yes. I'm softening that language who came in and he was the accused and his baby mama because she had like eight kids all from different men, but he happened to be one of them. Uh, His baby mama was saying, you know, I think he's going back on the ex-girlfriend and cheating on me. So I I said, all right, let's find out. And he was going to see my friend, Ken, who was the uh, polygraph examiner, and he was going to him next. So during the interview, he had such disdain for me. He just hated me. I mean, he he wouldn't even... Like he was just so above me, wouldn't, wouldn't look at me, nothing. I was like, okay, I'll play a game. And I caught him in his lie. He, I tricked him. I'm like, I'm going to interrogate him. I'm going to use my tricks. So 
I, I kind of sized him up. I profiled him and I was like, this guy, ego is super important to him. He's very, um, he's got that, you know, kind of bravado, um, the tough guy and ego is huge. So I played up to his ego and in my questioning, I kept talking about the ex-girlfriend. He claimed at 4 a.m. in the morning, he was going to pray at the mosque, right? And then he would go to pick up his kid or drop his kids off at the school bus or something. Well, when I presented the fact that the mosque didn't open till 5.30, he was like, uh, well, no, you're wrong. I'm like, well, actually I'm not. It's right here on Google. But anyway, you know, I'm not going to argue. I, I'm, I don't interview with the intention of arguing. I'm not going to argue with anyone. It's a waste of time and it creates too many negative emotions. So I kind of put it aside. I said, well, I know where your mindset is. So we talked about his ex-girlfriend because I thought I'm going to attack it another way. I'm not going to go after that. He's not biting and all he wants to do is deny. So let me go around it another way. And I talked about how as a Muslim man, that his rights, right, he had the right of taking care of the women in his life. And that if he didn't, it would kind of chip away at his reputation, you know, how people perceive him. And as soon as I started talking about it like that, he like bowed up on me. He's like, yeah, of course I do. Well, of course I look after. And he said, of course, I look after my girlfriend. I go by and check on her every morning. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And and now it is being recorded. So I said, well, you know, and after he said it, I said, well, what time do you check on her? And he just kind of went, well, uh," you know, stutter, stutter, all Mm. the kind of stuff. I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, gotcha. And then I caught him in another lie. And I was like, buddy, you're done. Like, I know you are lying through your teeth, but he would not admit it. He would not. I was like, this is recorded. I just caught you in two things. You just told me you visit your girlfriend every single morning, which your you know current girlfriend is accusing you of. So, okay, you did it, but you want to keep denying it. And I can't remember what the other one was. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm like, okay, fine. I said, well, you're about to get on the polygraph machine. How do you feel? He's like, I don't care one way or another because you know I'm innocent. And I was like, that's a typical deceptive response. When people don't care one way or another, that immediately tells me you're probably overselling this because liars oversell information. Mm-hmm. A truthful person would usually say, yeah, I'm willing to talk. I'm going to give you everything I know. This is going to clear my name. The court's going to see. My girlfriend's finally going to trust me. But you never say I don't care one way or another. Truthful people care. Yeah, you don't care if it says that you lied. Right. Mm. Right. So then he gets into the room with Ken and, and I said, before he went in, I said, well, let me go talk to, you know, the polygraph examiner and then I'll be right out and we'll bring you in. Any questions for me? He's like, he started to do He's getting jittery, starting mm-hmm. to sweat. And I was like, okay. And so I go in, I said, Ken, he is lying on, cause usually we have like three to, to six accusations. I'm like, he is lying on these three. I caught him and he's still denying it. I said, have fun. So he goes on, Ken releases him, and I popped in. I said, so he's like, he failed. <laughs> and I was like, oh. yeah, it seems like when, like, when people it. get to a point where they realize they're cornered or they realize they're caught, they just sort of throw yeah. up their hands and go, well, you know, you're not going to believe me anyway. And, you know, whatever happened, do whatever you're going to yeah. do because you're not, you know. And they just throw it back. Did you see that type of reaction in Gitmo? You know, in Gitmo, it was a different animal because a lot of them wanted to be there. 
And a lot of them, meaning what do you mean? it was better to be in prison oh. with the, you know, kind of with the enemy than it was to be let go or whatever, because it's almost like, again, living up to that repu reputation, like, yeah, I'm a bad, you know, I won't swear on the air, but, and it's almost like I, if I'm not here and I go home, it's very shameful, but here I'm getting the honor what, from my family, my friends, whatever, because I'm here with the fight. You, I don't know. Right. I wouldn't know that. But in their culture, because they're still in the fight and they're still in Gitmo is this sense of with it comes that bravado, with uh, it comes that, you know, that, like that a, reputation. Almost like, like a martyr. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yep. And so, you know, and you can't make people talk. It, you can't do that legally, morally, ethically, whatever it is. So my whole game was just to get you to talk to me. I don't care about the interrogation part right now. Just talk to me as human to human. That's how I created my interview method, which is now called the Cisco interviewing method. But it's very rapport-based. It's all it's non-accusatory and it's um, strategic thinking, but it's after that connection. I want to connect with you first as human to human. I want to create a safe space and then I'm going to push you to cognitive overload and let you tell me the truth. Because it's going to feel so much. How better. do you push people to cognitive overload? Increase that stress. Oh, okay. I keep asking you very detailed, specific questions about the lie. There's there's questioning techniques out there that are meant to check for truthfulness and accuracy, and they're pretty tricky. And then we have we have question types, and you have questioning techniques, and they're meant to kind of trick you up, just to say if you told me a lie. I'm going to ask a question about it. And if you tell me the wrong answer, it's indicative that that was a lie. So or give me an example of one of those trick questions. So it's a control question and it's beautiful. So if I came in on the show and you guys asked me how many books I wrote and I say, hey, I wrote four books. And then in later on, 10 minutes later, you say, Lena, out of those three books that you write, which one did you enjoy writing most? Now, you see, I changed it up there. Uh -huh. I said I wrote four. You said I wrote three. If I'm paying attention, I should, I should say, no, Sean, I only wrote, you know, I wrote four, not three. I wrote four. But it, it, sometimes I'm not paying attention and I don't hear you. But if I heard you and I don't correct you. So I'll give you an example. There was a U.S. Marshal in one of my classes last year. And this is the funniest thing that happened. And he, I do this exercise where people have to sit in front of a class and tell a truthful story and a lie. And they don't tell, obviously, nobody knows which is which. So they go through and they tell these two stories. And this one gentleman, he had a story about fishing in Florida with Captain Dan, okay, and skiing in Keystone, Colorado. Well, everybody kept thinking that the fishing story was a lie because of the Captain Dan. They're like, there's no way. And there's no way that, you know, you caught these fish and blah, 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 and all these assumptions. And I said, but if you listen to how he's telling the stories, I thought the skiing was a story. So I said, let me check them. So I said, hey, Tom, how many days did you spend in Aspen when you were skiing? He's like, oh, three. And I said, okay. Um, then I said, you know, which one was the most difficult at that ski resort in Aspen? And he said, oh, it was the red run or something. I'm like, oh, there's no red. All right. So I'm like, okay, got it. Now, if you listen to what I'm saying, and if you paid attention into this podcast, you heard that he told us a story about fishing in Florida with Captain Dan and skiing in Keystone. Mm -hmm. I kept saying, Aspen. I did five questions. 
Aspen, 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 Aspen. Never once questioned me. Never once said, I, Lena, what are you talking about Aspen? I was in Keystone. So I knew it was a lie. So when I said, okay, class, you know, time to make your decisions, raise your hand, how many people think, you know, uh, fishing in Florida was a lie. About 80% of the class raised their hand. And I said, all right, how many people skiing? And then 20%. And I said, Tom, you never went skiing in Keystone. He's like, you got me so nervous. How did you know? I was like, well, first off, I said you, you were an immediately? Aspen five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, immediately. Immediately. He's like, you scared me. <laughs> and so I said, did you hear Aspen? He's like, nope. And I was like, there you go. And that's when people are in cognitive overload. It's They're so stressed that they start to, you know, that, that cognitive ability decreases. I don't hear as well. I can't speak as well. I use shorter sentences, smaller words. You know, when, when I was a kid, my dad caught me one time using a, a trick similar to that. Uh, we lived in a house that was a kind of a split level house. So I had my own entrance and which was great as a high school kid, yeah. you know, had my own entrance and oh. exit. And uh, so he, he said, well, I want, you know, I want you to be home by curfew. And, you know, I was, I was pretty good. I, you know, I would always be home by curfew, but on that night I happened to not be home by curfew, you know, by a little bit. And so I see him at breakfast in the morning. <laughs> Why did you just shrug that? <laughs> well, <laughs> most times I was, but this time I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't home by curfew. So, um, and now I'm nervous about telling stories <laughs> to Lena cause she, she's analyzing everything I'm doing. So, so the next morning at breakfast, he says, well, came in a little late last night. And I just start spilling the beans. I'm like, well, you know, my friend Joe, you know, he ran a gas. So we had to get gas for him. You know, and, you know, the party ended late and I didn't want to leave everybody. And he was my ride. And, you know, and I start explaining why I was indeed late for curfew. And uh, he goes, well, all right, you know, that's, you know, the consequences, yada, yada, yada. And so I got in trouble. I got grounded. And it wasn't until years later I, I mentioned, oh, yeah, I remember being home late you know, one time for curfew. And my dad said, Oh, I went to sleep. I never knew what time you got home. I just, I just get up in the morning and tell you and ask you why you were late and you would just spill the beans. Oh, God. Like, oh, that is brilliant. Damn. That is brilliant. And for all you parents out there listening, you have to use that. That is brilliant. Um, liars. A lot of times we think we think that liars get real quiet. But they start flapping away because they're denying, they're justifying, and they're qualifying. And they just keep talking and talking and talking. Yeah. And it's all excuse, right? And it's an overselling and an excuse. And that's what yeah, we were doing. Focusing too much on the details and the rationale. Yeah. And maybe that's because in order to tell the lie, which is something that we know is morally wrong, we have to justify our behavior. And probably what we're lying about is something that was morally wrong in the first place, for which we had to justify our own behavior to ourselves before and after we did it. Right. So I've, I've exercised this justification tool over and over and over and over. And then you're asking me about the lie. No, no, I'm just justifying, 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 justifying. Are you, are you yeah. saying that, that people don't see it as a lie if they've justified it enough? Is that what you're saying? That's not what I'm saying. What are you I'm saying? saying that nobody, except for the, you know, very, very, very small minority of complete psychopaths, recognize when they've done something wrong. Or, or excuse me, everybody except for the minority of sociopaths yeah. and psychopaths recognize when they do something wrong. Okay. Right. No matter how big or small, you, you steal a stick of gum, you, 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 you run the stop sign, you, whatever it is that, that you've done wrong, 
you knew it was maybe you're just a little bit mean to your spouse or or to your coworker or your friend or whoever. Um, we recognize that that's wrong. Well, when mm-hmm. we do it, when we're going to do something that is not in alignment with our values, we we know it's wrong. We know it's wrong before we do it, during the action, and afterwards. We have to justify it. You mm-hmm. have to in order to in order to sit right with yourself, right? right. Yeah. Um, so I think that if you're if you're making an active choice to lie about the thing that you already did that was wrong, right? People aren't often lying about things that they did that were supremely good. <laughs> People right. are lying no. about things they did that were not right, like cheating on their girlfriend or whatever it was. And yeah. and so you you've had to he that guy had to lie or had to justify to himself cheating on his girlfriend in the first place. And then now he's in a position talking to Lena, he's lying about it, which he also probably knows lying isn't good either. And he yeah. he can, he can, he can now have to, he's now going to have to say, okay, well, I, I already did something wrong. I'm going to do something wrong again, but I'm going to justify that. Well, why would that be wrong? Well, I'm not cheating on my girlfriend. I'm maintaining a, a positive relationship with the mother of my children. And yeah, she, she's not, uh, my current girlfriend, and we don't have that relationship anymore, but I've got a girl with, or, or a child with this woman and this woman, so I want to have a relationship with both. I'm not really cheating. I'm being a good dad, actually, is what I'm doing. I'm being a good dad. So that's what I'm doing is I'm taking care of the women in my life. I'm being a good dad. I'm, I've got to have a good relationship with her. Let her think that she's going to have a romantic relationship with me so that she lets me see my son. So that's why I'm doing that. I'm not cheating, man. I'm not cheating. And he just does that and lives that justification over and over and over. And then he talks to Lena. And Lena's like, ah, oh, you're a dirty cheater. And he goes, well, no, I'm not. But I can't say that I'm seeing both of these women because then if I do, then my current girl's going to get mad and then I'm not going to get to see my daughter anymore. So I've got I've to lie to Lena. And I know Lena, she's probably you know, a very honest woman, but I don't want to lie, but I have to lie because I'm a good dad. Well, and that's you, what he's doing. He's justifying sure. it over and over to the end of time. Do you, that's a question for Lena. Do, do you, do you think that there are techniques that cross over from what you're doing that would help someone as Sanger was describing, identify when they're lying to themselves? And it doesn't have to be as extreme mm-hmm. as the example you were giving, but maybe it just says, well, you know, I can't do this thing. I'm not good enough. And you're lying to yourself or I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, in a, in just sort of that natural way that we all sort of deceive ourselves in saying I I can, you know, whether it's overconfidence or whatever it is, we lie to ourselves. You know, I do this with coaching, coaching and mentoring. And with coaching, coaching is very different, right? Coaching, you just ask questions. You're not providing guidance, mentoring, you're given that guidance, you're the expert. But with coaching, if I have a feeling that a person is lying to themselves or not being openly honest, maybe because they're embarrassed about something. Um, Maybe they're too embarrassed to be vulnerable. Maybe they have to keep up this facade, whatever it is. If you ask really good questions for that person and create that safe environment, if you don't feel comfortable with me, you're not going to open up all the way. It's that simple. Mm -hmm. I have to get you to trust me and say, I'm going to feel better after telling her the complete truth, even though it's so embarrassing, even though I cringe every time I think of what I did. But if I tell Lena and I finally get it out in the open, I know I'm going to feel better. That's the environment as an interviewer that I'm seeking to create in every conversation I have. It requires to know a lot about that person though, and their fears and what motivates them. When we talked to Eric Maddox, who is the interrogator responsible for finding the critical information that 
located Saddam Hussein. And he talked about rapport also. He said that that was the foundation of what he was doing that was successful. Uh, it was treating these people like humans, having a human to human interaction, right? Which you say the same thing. And I think it's funny, right? Because when most people say, I love my job because of the human to human interaction, they're talking about positive <laughs> interactions they're not talking about interrogating people uh which is not you know if i hadn't if i didn't know the both of you i wouldn't have ever put an interrogation even in the in the scope of a human human interaction right because i think we we think of uh interrogation as inherently you know not empathetic right well you're yes. gonna tell me now what you did and that's the bad unfortunate thing and that's why yes. it doesn't work that way is because there yeah. is no empathy and there is no rapport. What What is unique about your approach to rapport? So, okay, you know rapport. You can find common ground. A smile is disarming, right? Everybody knows the top level um, ingredients for rapport. And I really think common ground is the best. But here's the other thing. You have to be sincere. You have to be credible. You have to be interesting and show genuine interest. That means you have to actively listen to every single word a person says. You cannot label them or judge them. I never judge a person that I'm interviewing. I don't care if you committed hom you know, homicide, if you cheated on your girlfriend, if you're a terrorist, I'm not going to judge you. How do you do I'm going to listen to you. It's hard. <laughs> you, I mean, you're me talking to a yeah, guy, you know, he cheated on his wife or, you know, he rob the bank. I don't know, whatever it is. You know, he did something bad that you think is bad and everybody yeah. thinks bad. How do you not? Oh, it's disgusting. Yeah. So I may inside my head be disgusted with him. Right. But that's not going to come out my words and it's not going to come out my demeanor. How do you do that? My demeanor is going to be, always be calm and professional. And also then now you're talking, let's bring in a little science. Let's bring in mirror neurons and emotional contagion. I can it create emotion in uh, both of you. I can set the stage for this whole interview. It could be positive, upbeat, and high energy. It could be low key. It could be more sad. It could, right? All of how, how I act. Because people around us catch our emotion. If Think of you go, you know, people come to work one day and one of their colleagues comes in and it's doom and gloom and they're aggravated and you have to work with this person all day. By the time you go home, you're aggravated. And so it's the same thing in an interview and a conversation. Every interrogation I went into, into or an interview, I made sure I checked myself before I went in there. How am I feeling? Do I have any biases that are coming up right now? Do I have any judgment that's coming up? If I do, think it through, get rid of it because you got to table it. I have to go in with kind of that poker face. I have to be open. I have to be approachable and likable. I have to be trustworthy to get people to trust me. So how am I going to prove to this person I'm trustworthy? It's gonna come in my, the whole art, right? In my company's byline is the art and science of communication or human interaction. The science is the interrogation techniques. It's the interviewing techniques. It's the elicitation techniques. It's rapport building. It's the hourglass. It's all that stuff. The art is how I deliver it. How do I sound and how do I look? And just by that and combining the techniques and the art together, you can create that environment where people want to trust you because you look trustworthy. A lot of self-control. Okay. So this is what I'm struggling with is if I'm sitting here silently judging someone, I'm okay. going to have no hope in 
in making my in, words. In that. I can't yeah. fake that. Yeah, you, your your facial expressions are fairly transparent, <laughs> which I've been told is not a good thing. Um, yeah, I don't, do you focus on okay, changing have, your thoughts? Oh my! You read my mind, Sanger. I'm like, you're good at this. You already have the one thing you need to get over that. And you just said it. You just got to change your thoughts. Okay. That's it. So first, you have to identify the thought you're thinking. I'm thinking X. That's I'm why thinking I'm this. This uh, yeah, womanizer like is a bad guy. Yeah. yeah. Bad, bad, bad. You know, disgusting. Don't like. I'm going to make sure I put you in jail. Whatever, whatever. Stop thinking that thought. Change it to, I'm going to get you to trust me. I'm going to find the one thing that we can find common ground on. And then I'm going to create such a good environment. You're going to enjoy talking to me. And then I will influence and persuade you to tell me the truth. Mm. Those are the thoughts. Get rid of the bad thought. These thoughts do nothing for you. Nothing. So any type of thought that you think, no matter what the situation is, you don't have to be in an interview. If it is not going to help you, yeah. toss it aside. Stop thinking it. We have so much power in thought work. And I even have a friend we get... We do lives in my private Facebook group every Thursday night. I go on a YouTube channel free and we talk about, you know, emotional contagion, thought distortions, um, detecting deception, all this stuff, right? That humans use with each other and thought work is so powerful. And I have a good friend and we get into the woo-woo realm and she does a lot of manifestation and that kind of stuff, but thoughts are so powerful. And if we stop thinking, that negative thought that is not going to have any positive outcome and just change it. It's just amazing what you get in return. I had a conversation with Dan Dapani, who is a, uh, who's a Hindu priest. One of the things he talked about was where your awareness shifts in your mind. And what he was saying is that when you can become aware of this awareness or, you know, you're conscious of this awareness and, and what's happening, you can control it. So if that awareness is going to, oh, this is a bad person, this is a terrorist, this is a criminal, that you're in total control of that. And you can then shift it back to, oh, I'm, I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to create this safe space. I'm going to try and build that rapport. And uh, the more you focus on saying, I'm, I'm not going to focus on their criminality, or I'm not going to focus on their bad deeds, the harder that is to get to that proper so space. focus on thinking the opposite of what you don't want to focus think. on thinking of what you want to think about yeah. rather than avoiding yeah. what you don't want to think about. Yes. And it's just like the law of uh, attraction and law of positivity. When you think good things, good things happen. It's because that's what you're putting out there. It's a vibe. It's a sense. It's, I think it's so much more powerful than just thinking good thoughts. You know, I do think it has this kind of ripple effect in our life and really attracts positive energy. Are you finding when you talk with people in negotiations that, you know, you're hoping that they're going to be straightforward with, with you, you want to be straightforward with them, uh, that how do you build the best sort of rapport to get the best outcomes in, in those types of situations? It goes back again to showing I'm trustworthy, right? You can trust me. So how does that look like? That looks like me exposing myself and being vulnerable, me being open and honest, even if it's embarrassing, um, not withholding any information, being open with my body language, asking good questions and showing genuine interest in them. And finally, and this one's Kate, having empathy. If I have that ability to put myself in your position, 
then that means I have the interest enough to find out what your position is, what makes you happy, what your needs are. And because I've considered that, I'm now considerate. And because I'm considerate, I'm probably trustworthy. So it all comes together, but empathy is critical. And I like to teach, you know, people are always like the sympathy, empathy thing. Sympathy can just live in the trash can because sympathy disconnects us. That separates us. Empathy connects. Sympathy separates. Sympathy is me saying, oh, poor, you know, poor Sean. I feel sorry for you. Yeah, I feel sorry. It's pity. Nobody wants sympathy. People want empathy. And in empathy, sometimes you don't even have to say anything. Just I'm listening to you. And listening in that way helps you as an interrogator get honest answers. The name of your new book. (laughs) Oh, look what you did. Look what you did. Hire me for any little um, plug that you need. Tell me what motivated you to write this book. I have been teaching federal and state law enforcement for a long time. um, After I was teaching military and all in the strategic interviewing skills I was talking about. And I thought, you know, there's so many more people that can benefit from just knowing how to properly ask a question in a certain circumstance and get an honest answer and influence uh, the truth out of people because it is a persuasion tactic. And I thought, I'm going to put all of my techniques together to include the negotiation because anybody can use this. It doesn't matter your industry, health industry, sales, uh, real estate. Um, it, It just doesn't matter, right? An entrepreneur, because everybody deserves an honest answer, number one. And really, when you have techniques to utilize, it, it's kind of easy. So you just have to know how to ask a question, how to approach people, how to build rapport. And of course, your negotiation tactics, which I kind of separate in my book as three core areas. I take you through elicitation, which is an amazing technique to get information without having to ask a questions because questions can put a person on guard. Even if it's the most benign questions, if you ask too many, people are going to be like, why are you interrogating me? So, so I feel at every dinner party. Really? I know. It gets annoying. Quit trying to get to know me. Like, Back <laughs> off. <laughs> Shield yeah. up. Done. Yeah. So instead, just have a conversation and elicit information. And then, of course, the interviewing. And then the last part is negotiation. And so over the years, I feel that I have in my interviewing class or my methodology, I think you would call it. I have six core competencies. I truly feel like, hey, this is what we need to be doing as interviewers. I don't care what type of, if you're interviewing job candidates, if you're interviewing, you know, whatever, criminals, this is the future of interviewing. And it is rapport-based and it is strategic and it is non-accusatory. And that means it's going to take a lot of effort on people's parts to make that connection with another person, put biases aside, put those negative thoughts aside. So, you know, my training, I tell people it's so easy to flip on the mutton Jeff. It's easy to lose control of your emotions. It's easy to be mean. It's really hard not to, and to be emotionally controlled and really be cognizant of every word coming out of your mouth. So it's not accusatory or negative. And so there I said, you know what? I'm putting it all in a book. (laughs) Perfect. Where can people find not only your book, but the work that you're doing? So my company website is thecongruencygroup.com. And my book is on Amazon. It's on Kindle. If you just Google Honest Answers. And if you just Google my name, you can see all my websites come up as well. And of course, I'm on every social media and Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. You can find me. 
Thanks for being here, Lena. I learned a lot, and now I can catch Sean lying. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Lena. Thank, <laughs> yeah, thanks for being here. Oh, you didn't tell us your uh, your tell. Oh. Uh, okay. Right. I, it's a very common tell, right, actually. Are you ready? Let's hear it. The pitch of my voice goes high. It starts to get very squeaky like this. All right. So I'm going to give you the final question. Okay. What's your favorite podcast? You guys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, oh, there we go. A little bit of overselling there. Uh, okay. She went way too low. She overcompensated, <laughs> I think. Hey, thanks for being here. All right. Bye, Lena. Thank you, guys. Bye. My takeaway from our discussion with Lena is really building an environment where you're going to work best, whether it's in a coaching situation, parenting, working with a business partner just providing that safe space like she talked about and looking at being incredibly interested and open and not judging. And I I think a lot of the techniques that she talked about also work in just building that rapport, building that relationship. 100% agree. My takeaway was deciding to have empathy instead of sympathy. As Lena put it, sympathy separates, showing pity on someone puts us above them, puts them beneath us. Empathy is connection. And that will help make better decisions. If we can empathize with people, we're empowering them to make decisions to overcome their own struggles. And we're making an active decision to see them as our equal and see them as humans. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.